This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Good morning, everyone. You are listening to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. My name is Kate Copsey, and I am the host of the show. You can contact me from my webpage, katecopsey.com, or through America's Web Radio station site. This morning, we are going to talk to David Buchanan, and we're going to talk about taste, memory, and the forgotten foods, lost flavors, and why they matter. Good morning, David. Good morning, Kate. Yes, and you're up in Maine, um, and that's kind of a, a cool climate to mo- most of the country. But you've also lived in California and a few other places. So were the, um, were the gardening experiences, apart from the weather side, they're obviously going to be very different. So I guess how different were they, and why did you pick Maine, I guess, to start the farm? Well, I've lived in, in numerous places around the country, and my earliest gardening experiences were in Washington State on the east side of the Cascade Mountains, which uh, for those who haven't visited the Pacific Northwest, uh, it's, it's an extremely arid, uh, very cold climate, quite different from Seattle, quite different from the, the wet um, western side of the mountains. So I started gardening in a Zone 4 climate with about... 14 inches of precipitation annually, and most of that came as snow. So from uh, May to October, almost every day was was cloud-free, hot, intense. Um, and but it was a, it was a very challenging environment uh, because of the short season. And in contrast, Maine is a world apart, and we we're a coastal maritime environment. We get quite a bit of rain sometimes five, six inches at a time these days, and, and we'll get some intense, intense storms. And it's roughly zone 5B. I came back to the East Coast. I was born and raised in Massachusetts, so this was a homecoming to me. I never really intended to stay out on the West Coast. And I, I suppose I chose Maine in, in some ways by, by default. I, there's a lot of land available here that uh, wouldn't be in Massachusetts, and it's a, it's a wonderful state. And I personally, I, th- I think anything from a zone five down to a seven, you know, that they're, they're such great, great places because you can, you can grow so much. Once you get much further, you said zone four. Uh, I know mint is supposed to be not perennial in zone three. I think at one stage we were thinking of move, moving up there. Um, and, uh, and when you get too far south, you know, a lot of the northern vegetables, um, and, and so a lot of the trees just don't get enough winter, so they're they're a problem. But between five and seven seems to be where the majority of most things, unless they're tropical, do quite nicely. I agree, and we we had a bit of a wake up call this year with the the hard winter that came in and and knocked back plants like peaches and uh, took the buds off of even some apple trees in Massachusetts and. So we've been we've been lulled into a sense of complacency over the past few years by by our warm winters and and mild seasons all around and so um, I I think that we are 
still zone 5p but <laughs> but maybe we can't push the boundaries quite as much as we'd hoped yes it was definitely a comeuppance i think to a lot, a lot of people um, but in a lot of ways i think it was better than i think it was two years ago when we had that really warm weather in i think it was february um and i i think all, all the uh, the apple trees I, I believe it was michigan the apples and the peaches came out in blossom and then by april we've got back to normal and we're having frosts and freezes. Uh, and that was actually more devastating, I think, than this year on the plants. I mean, the humans were pretty it miserable. Was. <laughs> but, uh, it, it, was, it was a real problem here in Maine, and I grow, I grow fruit trees, and we had 80-degree days in March, and then a frost right at the end of April that destroyed most of the early blossoms. Um, or the, the fruit trees were in full bloom three weeks earlier that year than they, than they have been this year. Yes. So, so in some ways, I think for the plants, it was much better this year than previous yes, years. Definitely. But, uh, but in, anyway, um, your book, which is uh, Taste Mem- Memory, is about, um, shall we say, an incentive to grow older varieties of food and save the seeds from them. So how did you gravitate towards um, some of these heirloom varieties and, and particularly the apple trees and things like that? You know, I started with the idea of diversity before I began gardening. I Again, I was reading publications from the Seed Savers Exchange and Gary Nabhan's books on diversity and uh, his work in saving seeds and working with native tribes in the in the um, Southwest. And so I was fascinated with the idea of this cultural legacy that had been forgotten and neglected, the idea that there's a whole world of food out there that most of us have never seen or imagined or tasted, and that what we see in the supermarket is such a tiny slice of this incredible inheritance. So I started with that idea and then began gardening. And I'm assuming most of your listeners will come at this from the other other side with with a green thumb, but I didn't grow up in a family that uh, gardened or cared very much about food, so this was something new to me. And, uh, you know, and I, I think cer- certainly, um, you know, the supermarket stuff, I mean, that's so incredibly boring, but I think it's changed just a little. Um, I mean, I, I, I can now go and at the end of the, the produce refrigerator aisle, you can actually get kales um, and collard greens and things. And I don't think they would have even been entertained with that um, 10, 15 years ago. No, there's, there's no question we've seen an incredible food revolution in this country over the past decade, 10 to 15 years. The availability of foods to us is, even here in, in Maine, which is, despite the, the difficult climate is a, a real hotbed for small-scale farming and experimentation. So we have access to all kinds of foods that we, we wouldn't have found 10, 15 years ago, even at the supermarket, never mind at the farmer's market or specialty grocers. And that's very exciting to me. And a lot of these foods really are um, wonderful and unique, even um, even at the farmer's market. But as a gardener, we still have access to so much more that we'll, we'll, for any number of reasons could never find its way to to the um, to the but to the consumer, uh, it's really up to the to the grower to to rescue these foods. 
Yeah, and actually, I, I think that there are some chefs as well um, that are reflecting um, that diversity. I know when we were in uh, Georgia on the north side of Atlanta, there, there was a chef that put in his own garden, and there was a particular bean, I think, that he grew up with in the south that you couldn't get in the trade. So he thought, there's a half acre at the back here. I'm going to go ahead and, and grow that bean. Um, and so I think there's a little bit of a revolution in the food industry as well, um, as well, which is probably what is reflected in the supermarket to some extent. Yes, and this is a very exciting confluence of energy between chefs and growers. They're driving each other forward. The chef wants to see the innovative produce. The grower has this newfound appreciation for what they do, come through the door in a restaurant, and are welcomed for this this unusual produce that can set that chef apart. So it's a it's a very um, <clears throat> creative partnership. Yeah, um, but but I guess um, in in general terms, there, there were reasons why some of these seeds and varieties fell out of uh, favor. Maybe they they were more susceptible to disease, or maybe they were poor producers in, outside a particular region. So, how have you dealt with um, these issues and and picking the, the the ones that really do survive? Have you kept it just for the ones that are really good in the northeast, or wherever you go, do you just find things that are regional? good well the answer to that is really all over the map because when we're talking about the heirloom foods and biodiversity there's an incredible world out there to just to take a, an example that many people relate to and take the heirloom tomato there are thousands of different kinds of tomatoes out there that can be collected and grown and they'll have all kinds of traits some of them will be disease susceptible some of them will be susceptible to some diseases resistant to others some will be very flavorful others not so much it's it's like trying to reduce all of humanity to a a few certain traits and and generalize about it these these foods are uh very hard to you 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 can't generalize and characterize all of these foods as, as just one thing so I try to collect foods that will thrive in my particular environment, a coastal, relatively cool, damp summer. And when I'm growing tomatoes, often I do grow them in a plastic coop house to get that little extra bit of, of heat. Um, many of these heirlooms are, are finicky and reward you with fantastic flavor. But the part of the reason that we see limited diversity in the supermarket is that you simply can't market that kind of uh, range of food. You need consistency and uniformity, and any number of factors can knock a food out of production. It may not be that it's disease susceptible. To, to, to take a tomato to market, you need a thick skin, you need durability, you need to be able to pack it in a crate, you need it has to look perfect. It has to meet a certain standard in the consumer's eye. It has to um, hold up sometimes over thousands of miles of shipping. And in contrast, an heirloom tomato just needs to make it from the garden to your kitchen. And it can be a little ugly. You care most about the flavor. Um, so sometimes these foods, we may make an assumption that the, these foods have fallen out of use because there's something wrong with them. But they may just not completely fit the needs of the the marketer or the grower in some often trivial way or even if they do really you can only grow and sell 
a handful of varieties uh, without overwhelming the consumer. Yeah, and uh, you know, I I, th- I think slow, slowly the the consumer has been um, catching on, shall we say, um, to grow growing, particularly the proliferation of uh, farm markets. Which um, when I, I was doing herbs many years ago, um, there weren't that many farm markets and the number of farmers uh, because for every farm market you need a couple of anchors and the farmers were running out because they weren't uh, you know everybody wanted a farm market there weren't enough farmers to go around but i think we're changing it slowly yes there's been a real explosion of farmers markets in this country it's it's interesting because as we we on both ends of the spectrum agriculturally people are thriving the very small scale direct marketer who maybe just has a few acres of of vegetables and is selling directly to consumers at a farmer's market, and then the large-scale industrial farms. It's very difficult to make it in the middle when you have too much produce to sell directly so that you have to move it through the wholesale market, and then you're competing with the big players. But at the small end and at the high end, it's it's working. So we have this tremendous split. We've lost the mid-sized family farm of... 100, 200 acres, yeah. and oh. we have this, these two divergent paths that are both currently enjoying a measure of success. Yeah. Well, ho- ho- hopefully uh, that that will start to to change. Yeah. But you know, we have to go for our first commercial break here, David. Um, but we'll be back talking with David Buchanan about taste and memory and all those forgotten varieties. And we'll talk about things like the Marshall Strawberry on America's homegrown veggie show. Uh, we will be back in just a moment. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day, the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory, ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. Thank you, God bless Patriot Conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Membership. Are you an IHC member? Access to the Institute for Healthcare Consumerism's breaking news, industry trends, expert blogs, and networking with IHC's industry-wide member community. IHC membership puts you at the focal point of the dynamic health and benefit industry, allowing you to join the conversation and collaborate with industry stakeholders and your peers. Your IHC membership includes a subscription to Healthcare Consumerism Solutions Magazine, Healthcare Exchange Solutions Magazine, annual publications Healthcare Solutions Superstars, and Healthcare Solutions Outlook, a free white paper, and much more. Sign up as a free IHC member or $99 premium IHC member today at www.theihcc.com. That's www.theihcc.com. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, 
the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. Remember, you can catch up with us on Facebook at americas.com homegrown veggies. And if you miss any shows, you can find them on America's webradio.com webpage. You can find them on iTunes and you can find them on Stitchers. And today we're talking with David Buchanan about taste and memory and the forgotten foods. And we talked about, in general, some of the reasons why the supermarkets may be on doing the best job um, that they could. Um, so let's talk about uh, some of the ones that, that are in, in your book. And particularly, I think the first one that I noticed was um, the revi- the revival of the Marshall Strawberry. Um, and that, that was um, supposed to be America's best taste in strawberry. So why in the world did it get lost in the trade? And how did you find it again? It's a, it's a very interesting story. I came across the first notes about Marshall maybe 10 years ago. I was reading a publication put together by Gary Nabhan uh, for a project called Renewing America's Food Traditions, which was a consortium of preservation groups. And he listed the Marshall as one of the top 10 endangered foods in the country. And it, it wasn't then and still isn't available commercially. And there are maybe only two or three known sources of the berry the uh, the most prominent collections are are in the USDA uh, gene banks in Corvallis, Oregon, and, and and in Georgia, and in fact, their two accessions don't match. So it's a, it's been difficult to identify the uh, true Marshall. But I got two runners from the USDA in Corvallis, and from that, I've propagated them for the last um, eight or nine years. And it is a, an extremely flavorful strawberry. The, the history goes back to the 1890s. It was discovered in a farmer's field in, in Massachusetts, and it was a, a chance seed, a chance find, a chance seedling. And it went on by the mid 1890s to win blue ribbons at, at the Massachusetts Horticultural Society. And by the 30s, 40s, it had become one of the largest production berries in the country in the Pacific Northwest. It thrived in those conditions and was known as uh, the most flavorful strawberry in the country and, and, and helped to develop uh, the canning industry in part because it's, it's the center of the berry is very red, so it holds its color really well when it's frozen um, or canned. And from there, it, it it, there were some introduced viruses after the Second World War. It started to have it was a bit more finicky to grow than other varieties, and it was displaced as foods are uh, in commercial production, and then simply disappeared. It went from one of the from covering thousands of acres of production to just a couple of plots. There was a farmer in eastern Washington, a Japanese farmer who moved to the Spokane area to escape the uh, internment camps in the Second World War, and he brought the the berry from California and preserved it there and sent it to an historical society uh, from that, that point. So that's another possible known source, um, but it's otherwise uh, just just disappeared. Uh, wonderful berry, though. 
And, and and so, how big is this uh, berry? Um, it's mid-sized. It's yeah. it's not the gigantic berry that you'll you'll find in the supermarket these days, where it seems you only find three or four of them in a pint-sized container. But it's it's not a wild strawberry either, by any means. It's mid-sized. Okay, uh, it sounds like a great tasting one. Yeah, um, yeah. and and so it, it would be, it would do better than maybe in in the cool climate of the northeast or the northwest, rather than in the humid uh, climates of the Carolinas, maybe and further south. Well, that's where production moved, and I I don't know. It hasn't been grown that much recently, so I'm not sure that anyone could really answer that question. Oh, okay, um, because I know there are some, some regional um, varieties. Um, but I'm, I'm told that um, about, a, uh, shall we say, 100 years ago, the number of varieties and f- vegetables were far greater, and we talked a little about that, um, but they also disappeared from the, uh, the catalogs as well as um, the commercial market, so home growers weren't getting these. Um, so, so I guess, um, what would be some of the, the examples of things, I mean, one of the things I, I heard was there's something like, was it 30 different varieties of rhubarb, um, you know, and you know, where did they all go um, from, from the catalogs? I mean, if we take, take out the commercial aspect of it, um, the home grower hasn't been interested in these things either. Well, things are coming and going from the trade all the time, and I, I'm a member, a longtime member of the Seed Savers Exchange in Iowa. For those of you, who, the, your readers or listeners who may not know of it, it's a wonderful organization that connects backyard gardeners around the country who have material seeds to exchange. And the Seed Savers Exchange publishes periodically listings of all available nursery crops and and seed catalog offerings and they track what has come and gone over the years and it's a really interesting way to look at the trade because recently we have seen all kinds of small seed houses um, pop up that are offering heirlooms open pollinated seeds interesting unusual varieties and and that's a very exciting trend but in the past century a lot of the movement was in a was in another direction away from carrying these these um, more unusual varieties and if if you think about it it's it's it takes a lot of time and effort to grow out seed test it for germination and and market it and sell it through your catalog if you're only moving a small quantity of it. So inevitably, if you're a seed business, you're going to want to focus on the better-selling varieties. Um, so the, the others kind of come and go. Yeah. And, and, of course, you want the home gardener to be successful uh, with the, the varieties that you, that you pick. Um, but I think that's cha- changing, although, sadly, I think a lot of the smaller um, individual um, seed houses, they seem to be being gobbled up a little bit by some of the larger ones. Um, and I, I see that as being a little bit of a troubling trend, but may, may, maybe some of them will hold on um, because they, they, do, they've got, they go back so long, a lot of them. Yeah. They do, and yes, there. I, I don't follow too much of the consolidation of the the trade there, there. But there are certainly some wonderful small seed companies. We have a number here in the Northeast, and uh, we're very lucky to to have some companies like Fedco and Johnny's here in Maine that 
do all sorts of run all sorts of trials and high mowing seeds in Vermont that is um, working on or Johnny's is working on his own breeding and high mowing is working to um, protect regional varieties so uh, that that is happening all over the the country you just have to know where to look yeah, so, so one of the biggest areas maybe that that we have have lost, I mean, have we maybe sacrificed taste more than anything else, or, or is there a visual difference as well that we that have been lost for conformity, um, apart from the taste? Well, I, I think of my interest in these foods isn't just flavor, it's, it's also for the traditions, the stories, the sense of history, the sense of place. A lot of the foods were bred and developed in a particular region and have strong ties to the, the people and the, the culinary history. So taste is definitely one, but there's also a sense of disconnection when you, uh, when you grow foods that no longer uh, maintain those food traditions. Uh, I think that some new varieties are being bred for taste. There, there are some exciting new programs in places like Cornell that are attempting to maintain these traditional breeding practices and, and emphasize flavor as much as disease resistance and, and everything else that a farmer needs. Um, I guess we've, in my sense, is that these foods are um, embody all kinds of cultural things, uh, important uh yeah. pieces of our history that we need to preserve. Oh, I, I think so. And that, and that history um, of different plants and, and you know, where, where you find them and, and saving the seeds. I mean, obviously, the mortgage lifter is probably um, probably changed a little along the way and been embe- embellished. But that's a typical story that I, I think sort of as much drives the sales as anything else. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing about these foods. They are constantly changing. They are evolving. And it's very hard to say exactly what we've lost and, and what we have now. And I think the important thing is to remain engaged with them because they'll, they'll, they continue to, to change in the hands of every gardener. If you took the same mortgage lifter tomato seeds and, and distributed them to 50 seed savers over time, they probably wind up with quite different tomatoes, a little bit of outcrossing here and there, a little bit of genetic mutation and selection, different selection pressures. One might be selecting for larger tomatoes, another for a different flavor, and uh, that it, it might become unrecognizable um, over time. But by the so- same token, different seed companies listing the same named variety may have something that's slightly different. Uh, one might have a higher quality line than another. And so I think what's changed the most over the past 100 years is that level of engagement. And this is where home gardeners, seed savers, have something really valuable to offer. Uh, 100, 150 years ago, everyone was saving their own seeds um, until the middle of the 19th century. We didn't essentially have seed companies with it. Things were passed around locally. They were passed down from generation to generation. They were place-based. And everybody was selecting for their own climate, their own particular tastes and the, the challenges of their the ecology within their gardens, the, the pests or the diseases that they were encountering. And so it's that sense of um, engagement and, and that level of diversity that we've lost. 
Yeah, and and it really is su- such a a shame, I think, that uh, so many varieties. Um, I know when we were down, uh, say, in in, in Georgia, um, I think the Stone Mountain watermelon was developed down there, and at one stage, um, I think the mid early. 20th century, it was the most popular watermelon um, in across the south, o- over the whole of the south. And now, now it's more difficult to even get uh, even to get get a, a seed from um, that that one until the last couple of years, anyway. Um, but you know, we need to go take another quick commercial break. Um, but I want to remind everyone: you're listening to America's homegrown veggies, and we'll be back with uh, David Buchanan talking about taste memory. And we're going to talk uh, when we come back about the science cider mill and old apples that make great tasting cider. We'll be right back. This is Cheryl Linker, host of the Master Gardener Hour on America's Web Radio, Saturday morning at 11 o'clock. Join us as we keep things fun and interesting as we educate you in the world of master gardening. Today's consumers find themselves faced with a greater variety of choices than ever before, both in the food they eat and the information they receive about that food. Feedstuff's Food Link was created to provide you with a balanced source of information for making decisions about your family's balanced diet. Visit FeedstuffsFoodLink.com to learn about your food directly from the source, the people who work every day to provide it. FeedstuffsFoodLink.com, connecting farm to fork. Hi, I'm Paisley McDonald, and I'd like to invite you to listen to my show, At Home with Paisley, every week, Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern, for practical advice and stylish living for your home and office. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. You're back listening to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I am the host of the show, Kate Copsey. And this morning we are talking about taste and memory with David Buchanan. And David, we talked about some of the um, different varieties that have uh, gone away from the the trade. Um, So let's talk about the the cider business um, and and some of the things, I guess, connected with that. Um, I guess cider has become a little more popular in the last couple of years years um, for a lot of reasons but what you're talking about isn't the commercially available amber liquid this is what I would call proper cider right? <laughs> <laughs> well said this is a this is a real passion of mine and cider is the hard cider is a very traditional drink in New England and for a number of reasons it uh, disappeared and the revival is happening largely with the use of dessert apples, the, the same Max and Cortlands that we find in the supermarket, simply because cider makers don't have access to true cider fruit. And at one time, it was understood that you need you'd have, you would have certain apples that were best for making pie, some that were best for fresh eating at different times of the year or for storage or for drying. And then there were the apples that really were best crushed and, and pressed and either used for fresh 
juice or ferment it into cider, into hard cider. I've, I've been collecting apples for the past five, six years and have developed a, a small orchard of uh, about an acre and a half so far. It'll be about two acres eventually with 200 varieties of apples. And these are largely uh, forgotten American cider fruits. And I'm trying to finish off my, my cider house now so that I can get, finish my licensing and start production on some level this fall. Uh, to to bring out my own line of commercial hard cider. Ooh, that would be fun. <laughs> it's really fun. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a yeah. lot so, of work, but it's very exciting. Yeah. So, so when did you actually taste your first true cider um, and find that there was a difference? You know, I, I write about a moment at an Arc of Taste meeting, which is the Arc of Taste is a is a project of the uh, nonprofit Slow Food based out of. Italy and in this country out of New York. The Arc of Taste is an effort to uh, chronicle all sorts of endangered in, uh, foods that are, that are uh, known particularly for their flavors. And I had a cider that was produced from Harrison cider apples, which was once considered the finest um, type of cider in the in the New York market. Fetched the highest prices. It was a <clears throat> largely a mid-Atlantic apple, and it was. Uh, at one time grown fairly widely by the 60s and 70s. It was considered to be extinct. It wasn't rediscovered until the, the mid-70s. And I tasted that cider. It was really like nothing I'd ever had. It was it was a very dark amber. It was very rich, that full-bodied. Um, it was completely dry. It wasn't a sparkling sweet cider by any means. It was very different from what you find on the shelves today. And it uh, it had... Uh, this incredible mouthfeel. It's just, uh, it, it was, it was like, it was like no cider I've had before or since. And it's, it's uh, my inspiration. I, I suppose you could say. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds almost like the the type of cider they have in Cornwall with the odd sheep falling in there and things like that. Um, and I, I know when young guys from London um, used to go down to Cornwall, they used to think they could drink and all that, and, but the barman would only serve them half a pint of, of cider think because half the time, you know, when they hit the fresh air after half an hour of cider, half a pint of cider, they just fell over. Um, so, so, is, so is your cider as toxic as that, such high in alcohol? No. That's one of the beauties of, of cider, that the alcohol level is actually quite low in comparison to wine. It's comparable to beer. It's usually around 6 or 7%. If you start off with, there are some apples that have a quite a high sugar content, and I suppose theoretically you could produce something very very strong from those, but it, it still would be less than, than wine. And uh, if, you, if you start to fortify the juice with sugar, then you wind up in an apple wine category, which is different. So... So, uh, no, you'd have to be a bit of a lightweight to, to <laughs> not handle more than a half a pint of, of my cider. I seem to remember it as being cloudy as well. I'm not sure that, that it was awfully clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, there, there are different si- styles of cider, and uh, an English farmhouse cider is often unfiltered, or, or I think maybe as a rule unfiltered, versus, say, a sparkling French cider, which is, is clear like a champagne. And and so so I guess you're, you're grafting um, these these trees to keep keep them in production, or or are you growing? I mean, is it possible to grow them maybe a Bramley, an English Bramley from seed? Mm-hmm. 
I have, I have, no, I have a Bramley, uh, but no, I grafted it. If you grew from seed, it would, it wouldn't be true to the, the original fruit because, uh, apples outcross, so you have to, you have to graft. Okay. Um, and so, so how many varieties, um, do you now produce? Well, I have close to 200, and, and they range from some modern commercial varieties. I'm, I'm not fussy about that. If something is good, I'm interested, to old one-off varieties that are named, to some that we know nothing about that I've simply collected at the side of the road around Maine. It's interesting to travel around New England. You see a lot of very old apples and some pears that are often... 200 years or more uh, old and we don't know anything about them and if if they're not rescued if they're not grown they're going to these old varieties will disappear yeah because somebody's going to obviously make a parking lot or something like that over or them they'll just die <laughs> yeah. they're, yes. they're, they're on their way out <laughs> yeah yes um, and so are, of all these varieties you grow are they all predominantly um, for the cider market or, or do you categorize them into dessert apples storing apples in a traditional way there's certainly a lot of overlap. Some of my apples, like Baldwin, are New England, old, old New England standbys that have all kinds of uses. Baldwin is one of the finest pie apples, great for fresh eating and storage, but it makes a fantastic single variety hard cider too. And then some of my ciders are, uh, some of my cider apples are Teutonic to eat. You wouldn't want to eat them right off the tree. They're really just to, to add some, some extra flavor to the, the, the finished product. So I, I, so I don't collect only cider apples, but I'm driven by the idea that I can help to revitalize this industry around New England if I can find some apples that have been forgotten and that lend themselves well to a blend, then maybe we can help to revive a bit of the orchard industry, which is really in serious decline here. And, and was, was it difficult then, um, you, you're say, saying that you're getting a, a license for uh, obviously a commercial application of this, mm-hmm. but did you start by maybe just pressing them and making it um, just for yourself to tinker around with the idea of how to do this? I mean, is it possible, you know, if people have got apple trees in the, in the garden and the right sort, that they could do this themselves, make a, a small pot? Yeah. So yeah. How, how, how do you go about it? You just kind of crush the living daylights out of them and strain it? Well, I, maybe I should make a quick pitch for my editor Ben Watson's book, Cider Hard and Sweet. It's an excellent primer. There's, there are other books out there as well. It's actually quite easy to make a basic cider. It, uh, the, on the simplest level, you can simply press a, an apple into juice and put it in a bottle with an airlock on it and, and let it ferment. It, there will be natural yeast on the, on the fruit that'll, that'll do the job. And it gets much more complicated from there, but yes, you can you can make your own cider, and it's a lot of fun to travel around and and experiment with apples that you find on the side of the road. Crab apples often make fantastic cider, Ooh. and it it doesn't take a lot of equipment or or skill. You just need a cider press and and some friends who want to drink it. And is it possible still to get those um, sort of homegrown uh, cider presses through the through the, the trade? Are they still available? They're I'm- still available. There are some brands out there like Happy Valley that uh, are commercially available. I have a sort of a I have a Langman water press, which is a stainless steel press that is 
pricier, uh, but there's some some uh, consumer level uh, presses available, and you, it's also still possible to find old old presses in the in the back of a friend's barn. The the trouble with the old presses tends to be that they were worked until the teeth wound out worn out on were worn out on the uh, the grinders, um, so they grind the fruit very slowly. Uh, but the press itself will work fine if you if you can find a way to to grind the fruit. Yeah, and and are there particular apples then um, that you could maybe? Does it have to be a tart apple um, that you wouldn't perhaps use in a pie that makes the best type? Like you, you mentioned, crab apples. You don't normally make those into into pies or eat them as a dessert apple. Well, dessert apples have their place too, and it's different region to region. For example, here in New England, we tend to have a greater level of acidity in our dessert fruit than than would be the case in in England. Uh, simply because of, probably because our colder winters, I'm not sure what what lends itself to that. But our dessert fruit works reasonably well. You can make a a passable cider from just simply using Max and Cortlands. It it might be I, I find the juice from that to be a little watery and the end product a bit dull. So you want to look for some fruits that have high levels of sugar and a bit of tannin, a bit of astringency, a little edge to them, and and maybe some different colors and uh, just uh, experiment. Oh, so, so you can mix these to get different apples oh, sure. together. Um, it, yes. it doesn't and, have to be a pure line. Will be a blend. <laughs> Okay, um, and and I, I guess if you if you're making it um, your, yourself, you know what goes goes in it, <laughs> and and then you could sort of record that on the side and find the blend that you like. How how long does it take to mature and get the alcohol content in there? I mean, are we talking it? You just leave it in the top of the bar, barn over the winter till next spring or something? Yes, basically, it it does it. It depends in part on the yeast that you use. Some will ferment the juice much more quickly than other yeasts and, and the temperature. So if you have a, a cider at, with a fast-acting yeast it, and the room is 80 degrees, you, you'll have a fully fermented product in just three, four weeks. If you're doing it at 50 degrees with a slow yeast, it, it might take four months. Uh, but it but it's drinkable at every step of the way. I, I like fresh cider when it's just started to go off and become a little bit fizzy. Uh-huh. Uh, so you can, you can taste and, and, it at any but stage. All, but all, all of these will have an alcohol content. We're not talking apple juice at this stage, That's right? right? <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and, and I think it, it sounds just, um, you know, my, my brother and I actually made an elderberry wine uh, many, many years ago, and we sat, we sat it above, above the stables, and frankly, we forgot about it till next summer. It was as clear as a bell, but it was almost like a liqueur to drink, and boy, we, we didn't need half a pint of that one. <laughs> <laughs> How did it taste? Uh, oh, it, it, it was it was just beautiful. Um, but you know, we need to take our final commercial break here. Um, but come back and listen to more about taste and memory uh, with David Buchanan, and we will be right back. Hi, I'm Paisley McDonald, and I'd like to invite you to listen to my show at Home with Paisley every week Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern for practical advice and stylish living for your home and office. Do your children know where their food comes from? At ConnectingFarmToFork.com, there's all kinds of ways to help your child understand how 300 million of us here in America stay nourished, clothed, and healthy. 
activities, food facts, and farm visits help young people learn about America's hardworking farmers and have lots of fun doing it. Visit ConnectingFarmToFork.com today for a learning experience that will really grow on you. ConnectingFarmToFork.com. Brought to you by the people who care at Feedstuff's Food Link. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. I hope you're enjoying America's homegrown veggie show this morning. We have been talking with David Buchanan about his book, The Taste, Memory, Forgotten Foods, Lost Flavors, and Why They Matter. Um, And this book is currently on the market. Is that right, David? Yes, it is. Yeah, and people can get it sort of on the the usual online places like Amazons and all that lot. But is it also available in um, the independent bookstores? Yes, region by region. It's It's been marketed across the country by Chelsea Green, my publisher, and it's also available from their website. Oh, and I, th- I think people should go to their, their website um, because they, they have such a wonderful collection of, of books there. And that's ChelseaGreen.com, is that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. And, and you have your own website for this particular book. It's called OriginsFruit.com, is that right? That's right, yes. Yeah, and, and that talks about the, the farm and particularly the side of business. Am I correct? A little bit. I, yes, I, I don't spend much time online. I've been uh, very busy between the renovations of our farmhouse and and getting on the side of business together and the orchard. But I... I promise one of these days I'll spend more time updating my website. <laughs> and are, are you going to be the first commercial cider business in, in Maine, or are there still some remnant ones out there? No remnant cider makers, but there are new startups. And most of them, there are a couple that are starting to grow their own fruit. Most of them are, are sourcing uh, cider from the commercial market using the same dessert varieties available to, to everyone else. But I... I'm hoping that slowly that will start to change. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. It, uh, and I, I guess being, being a farmhouse, do you sell these apples and, and uh, older heirlooms on farm markets or anything like that locally at the moment? I have a stand at the Portland Farmer's Market on uh, on weekends. And while I'm waiting for my apples to grow, I'm growing other fruits and selling fruit smoothies and, and nursery plants. And are, are they basically heirlooms and open pollinated things that you that you're selling? Uh, it's a mix. I I find that I, I still grow the heirloom strawberries that you mentioned, like Marshall and, and a couple of others. But on a larger scale, I've I found that it is easier to just buy in plants and and keep my production up. If I could buy Marshall, see uh, plants. 
that I knew were disease-free and on a larger scale, I would do that. But um, I have to be realistic about what I yeah. what I can manage as a as a commercial grower. And and do do you go around the the region uh, giving talks um, or anything like that um, in in that particular area? I do. I I've spoken a number of times around. Uh, I haven't traveled too much beyond New England. Uh, a little bit to the southwest last year to promote the book. Came out in 2012. Um, yes, I'll be in Louisville, uh, in Kentucky this fall for a Slow Money gathering. Slow Money is um, an organization that's working to channel investment to regional food startups. Mm-hmm. And uh, yes, I do what I can to promote the book. And, and is this available? Are most of these venues um, open to the public or are they restricted? Uh, no, I'll. I'll I, don't speak at any restricted events. Some of them are conferences where there's an, an entrance fee. Uh-huh. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and so you take, take books with you, um, and that way people can get a, a signed book? Yes, and uh, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm not very good at having books with me all the time, but I, uh, anytime I am at an event, I'm, I'm ready to sign books and, and greet readers. Uh-huh. Yeah. And can people get a signed book maybe from through your website or do they have to go through um, the publisher to get that? I haven't actually fielded any requests of that kind. Um, oh. it, usually it's purchased from, from a publisher. I suppose I, I could send a signed copy to someone who really wanted it. Um, uh-huh. my, I, I've got to warn you, my signature is, is barely legible. I think I'm... <laughs> deface your book with my signature but if you really want that I, I'm happy to inscribe something special um, and I could could mail something uh-huh. um, and, and this is what, is what your second or third third book um, that you've done with Chelsea Green I know you, you mentioned the, the cider book uh, no that's not my book that was my publisher's book oh, oh. My, my editor's book Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, and but I say Chelsea Green. I I think um, I, we've had a couple of their authors on, and I always get the feeling that I mean I I was able to download this on my Kindle, so there's an electronic version of this. Um, but I always get the feeling that these are best to be in hard copy and taken to a sunny corner of the garden, or in my in my case, the hammock, um, and and read in places like that um, because it's kind of the older way, um, and it's people. Um, oriented, the people you met, is that right? The, the stories and the people that are saving the seeds and, and growing these old plants. Yes, I, I wanted, I didn't want to write a book that was all about vegetables. I wouldn't have gotten through page three if I'd just tried to chronicle <laughs> lists of, of foods. I was trying to tell stories about people, uh, tell a, uh, put together a narrative about my own efforts to, to build something around these foods, to, to experiment with them, and then to, tell the story of the people who are trying to, to work to, to save them. Yeah, and, and I guess when, when, you, when you were in the, the USDA, um, sort of the library there, um, how, did, um, how did you find all, all the, the books that you, that you needed? I mean, I've, I've seen, I know the USDA put out a, an Apples of New York somewhere around 1901, mm-hmm. and I found that there was a guy down in, North, uh, in Georgia, a um, place called Ball Ground, um, and we, we were after um, grafted 
um, heirloom plants or, or trees. And, and he just, uh, I was talking about a pear-shaped apple, which we'd found in the record. It was called a pear-shaped apple. He went and took the coffee mug off this big tomb of apples of New York. And it was just beautiful, the, the drawings inside it. They, it is. And if you can't, you could find that from an antiquarian book dealer, but you can also go find it online from a website called archive.org, which is a wonderful resource. It's scanned all sorts of books that are no longer copyrighted. And so that whole series, The Apples of New York um, and, and others that were put out by the the, um, the experiment station in Geneva by the, um, by the government around 1910, 1915, um, are, are all available online. And it's a, it's a wonderful way to go look at... Um, uh, to do some research on these old, yeah. older varieties. And, and did, did every state produce that, or, it, or was New York the prime one that you were able to use for referencing? There, there isn't a lot out there like this. There, nothing quite so accessible. Okay. okay. Um, and, and when you go out and do talks, are, are they on the, the website, um, or, or uh, is that kind of a little behind <laughs> at the moment? <laughs> My own website is more than a little behind, but if you if you go to Chelsea Green's website, they have an author page and a profile, and if I can remember to forward the information on my talks to them, it will be there. Um, and how about social media, um, sort of Facebook and things like that? Do you do anything of those on, on there as well? Uh, probably showing my age. I turned 50 this summer, but I'm not especially... It's partly a time issue. I'm just not on the computer that much. I do have a Facebook account, but it's just a personal Facebook account. When I launch the line of cider next year, I'm going to be branding it and, and marketing through um, through social media. But I just find I can barely keep up with everything in the field right now, so I'm not spending a lot of time. And, and, and so, so the cider mill should be up and running and certified for production uh, by the end of this year. Is that right? Yes, and I have, uh, I have, a, I have about 100 apples that are, are beginning to bear that I can use and a couple of other sources. So it's really another three, four years before I have my own um, distinct brand, uh, my, own, my own apple production. And so, so the idea is that, that you grow the apples and you take them directly into the cider house and then produce the cider at the other end. And then I sell it, for the most part, in, in and around Portland. It's going to be a small-scale, artisanal, so it's, product. So it won't be available online, I guess, if it's alcohol. I'm sorry, you no. <laughs> yeah. You'll have to come to Maine. Oh, that's well, Maine a... is a wonderful place to visit in the summer. It's a good place to come and drink my cider. Oh yeah, I, I mean uh, that that would be wonderful. I guess we have to wait till next year to do that. But uh, yes, and will you be able to sell it on the farm market or not? I hope so. I've uh, been through the city council to change the the regulations, and I there are a couple more hurdles, but I hope to be able to sell it. There. And you'll have to ring off a little area because <laughs> no doubt <laughs> put put string around eighteen or twenty one and above. <laughs> oh, you just have to come to the farm and sit under the apple trees and have a sip. Oh, so so you have the farm open as well. I think we probably will to some extent. Oh, yeah. that, that We're very close to to downtown Freeport and LLP, and so we've got quite a bit of tourist traffic coming through there. Oh, that that would be wonderful! And since I bet that's really pretty in spring when all the apples are in blossom. It's pretty every time of year. Yeah, yeah. and do do you um, sell sell the the, the trees them the grafted apple trees as well? I do sell some. I've been I've been selling them for the past four or five years 
I'm moving toward more of a custom grafting arrangement because I don't want to wind up with a lot of extra stock, things that I can't move. So I, I tend to carry a small stock right now and, and sell it mostly by word of mouth. So people would go to originsfruit.com and go to the contact page and say, do you have this apple? And then they, they would arrange with you. Yes, but I'm, really, I, I'm not set up as a mail-order nursery, and I, and I wouldn't want to sell beyond the Portland market. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and and so, so it would be on a custom basis that now yes. that you're doing this. Yes, what what type of things are people really looking for? Um, dessert, are they looking for apples that they can just pick, or are they looking for cider-type apples or the older apples just for the fact that they're heirloom apples? Some people are looking for cider apples. Uh, more probably want dessert fruits, and I'm selling close to the city, so... It's largely dwarf trees that can fit into a, a small yard. I'm often surprised by what people want. I, I don't understand why anybody would want to grow a Macintosh in their backyard. Just go to the supermarket. <laughs> <laughs> we grew historically 20,000 different varieties of apples in this country. There, so there are 19,999 other varieties you might want to try. <laughs> I don't understand why you want the same apple you can easily pick up at the supermarket. Yeah, although the supermarket, again, we, it has, has maybe got a, a few different varieties now. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think yeah. they do a few. I mean, five years ago, it used to be a, a, the same green um, Granny Smith and then a red apple. Um, mm-hmm. But now you can get Gala and you can get um, a couple of different ones. Um, yes, and some very nice apples. I, I really like Fuji and Braeburn, for example. Yeah, so, so there, there is hope at the end of this tunnel. <laughs> there is hope. Yeah. Um, there but, is hope. But, yeah, but, you know, we're right at the end of the show show david um I, I think it's fascinating what you're doing um and thank thank you so much for being a guest this morning it's been well, great thank you, fun. Kate. it was a real pleasure for me oh thank you okay and everybody thank you for listening to america's homegrown veggies show um yep it's been a great show and we will be back next week uh talking all about growing different things uh including veggies so have a good gardening week everyone and we'll be back here next saturday